Coming up on AARP, The Perfect Scam. My father was trying to convince his mother that she was running out of money. He had so, so much undue influence had been imposed on her. Here she thinks she's been completely broke, and he's just selling stuff left and right. For AARP, The Perfect Scam Podcast, I'm your host, Will Johnson. I'm joined once again in the studio by the AARP Fraud Watch Network Ambassador, Frank Abagnale. Hi, Will. Great to be with you again. Well, this week's scam is one that highlights the dangers and prevalence of financial elder abuse or financial exploitation. It's the story of the late Brooke Astor and how she became a victim at the hands of her own son. It's a story of a stolen fortune, a fight for guardianship, and a family's broken trust. Brooke Astor defined New York society. She was classy, glamorous, smart, and funny. And for much of her life, she was in charge of the Vincent Astor Foundation, her third husband's legacy dedicated to the alleviation of human suffering. When Vincent Astor died in 1959, he left his fortune to the cause, and Brooke Astor took over. But the final years of her life before she died in 2007 at the age of 105 were overshadowed by a nightmarish scenario at the hands of her only son from her first marriage, Anthony Marshall. He and a family lawyer stole tens of millions from Brooke Astor after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. They were eventually convicted of the crime. It was Anthony Marshall's own son, Philip Marshall, who came to his grandmother's rescue in a well-publicized case that captured headlines and brought together a cast of Brooke Astor's famous friends. Philip Marshall never intended to pursue a criminal case against his father, already in his early 80s at the time of the trial. But as time went by and stories emerged, so did his focus and resolve. All right, I am here with Philip Marshall. Tell us about Brooke Astor. Who was she briefly? And and a little bit about where she was and your relationship to her at, towards the end of her life. To the world, she was Brooke Astor. Yep. She was never really Mrs. Vincent Astor. She was Brooke Astor. She had her own identity. Uh, at, but she was my grandmother. I had great memories in New York. We had amazing times in New York. And probably the best memories were in our country house, uh, in the country, and but especially in Maine, where we just go hiking. She would just peel up mountains. And we're talking, this went on for decades. And sometimes you'd have to carry her dogs, but that's the only thing that would slow her down. She, and she would go out four nights a week. And that was, those were just very elaborate dinners yeah. and, and all the benefits and the plays and theater and all this. Philip Marshall describes his father's relationship with his mother, Brooke Astor, as complicated from an early age. Anthony Marshall was the product of her first marriage. He did not quite live up to her expectations. And uh, so that was difficult. And not to be disrespectful, but what happened, I think, is... He was tied to her apron strings, and then later on he became tied to her purse strings, and they got all tangled up. But it wasn't until Brooke Astor was elderly that things took a turn for the worst. She was clearly cognitively declining what would eventually be diagnosed as Alzheimer's. Uh, December 2000, my father wrote an eight-page letter to a, a geriatric neurologist describing what, how my grandmother's feeling. She had no idea what was happening to her. She thought she was going crazy. And she was, and that's all her expression in this letter. 
He was chronicling how she was feeling in her words when she would meet, when they would meet, and she would say to her son, she goes, you know, I, am, I have no idea what's happening with me. I am, feel I'm losing my mind. Uh, I would rather die than feel this way. He was really concerned about her, but he also felt she was trying to give things away to whoever walked in the door. Oh, you know, this, and he didn't want that. Philip Marshall starts having conversations with his grandmother's staff members. Among the first, her butler, Chris Ely, who Philip met with secretly outside of the home. He reached out to me, and eventually I spoke with lots of staff and caregivers. We didn't know. At first, I had no idea. Could I trust people? I had to schedule a get-together with my grandmother through my, my grandmother's staff after hours, because if my father was alerted, he was going to be there. This is part of isolation. And uh, there were two, one nurse was on duty. Another came in uh, for, her, you know, for her shift. And we started sharing, uh, expressing shared concern and stories and realizing this was really bad. And it was that evening that I decided to act. As stories were shared, the picture began to get clearer and clearer, and events and memories from over the years started adding up, like a painting that disappeared in 2002. My grandmother's favorite painting, a Childhausen painting that she had bequeathed to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, the staff told me that my father had sold the painting. What was the painting of? It was Flags Fifth Avenue. Okay. So it was New York, yeah. and it was it had flags in it, okay? Yeah. That, she loved that painting. She bought it into 1970. But my father uh, was trying to convince his mother that she was running out of money <laughs> and that she needed to sell the painting. And that after she, the painting was sold, she asked... Her son, my father, now can I buy dresses? He had so, so, you know, so much undue influence had been imposed on her. Here she thinks she's been completely broke, and he's just selling stuff left and right. The nurses and the staff, they're saying, well, things are just bad, but they weren't sharing that much until 2006. In between, in 2004, uh, I uh, I saw my grandmother, and I we drove up to see her. She was going out to the country because she we couldn't arrange a, a a visit with her could not be arranged. That would be again isolation. So we just drove up, and she, I saw how terrified she was. It's like whoa, she you know. And then I remember visiting her once and reading her book um, to her, Patchwork Child which is about her childhood, and because what am I going to do at that point? So I'm reading her book, and I go to put it back in the shelf, and she looks up and goes, don't take that. It's like, whoa, what is happening here? So just that, even that alone. She didn't want you to take the book? She, you know, my father had been lifting off Tiepolo paintings worth almost half a million, putting them in Bloomingdale bags, as we found out later, and walking out. He was walking out of her apartment with pretty much whatever he wanted. I didn't know that at the time, but it's like, oh, I'm about to put the book back in the bookcase. And she's going, don't take that. It's like, whoa, this is so bad. And it all adds up slowly. 
she told the nurse, she goes, you know, oh, they're here, but father and, and third wife. It's like, what do they want? Tell them I will pay them to leave. As time goes by, Philip Marshall develops a deep understanding of elder abuse and financial exploitation. His vocabulary has evolved. What I would call it now is she endured hybrid elder financial exploitation where, where his money is going out, but as, a, as part of the means of that exploitation, there's polyvictimization. So my grandmother was isolated. She had, uh, as here, the undue influence is incredible. Uh, psychological maltreatment is putting it politely. And there was deprivation and there was a lot. Convinced that his father was victimizing and stealing from Brooke Astor, Philip Marshall decides that his father has to be removed as her guardian. The case goes to civil court. And we didn't know where we were on this, okay? You know, I didn't know what side, and they didn't know where I was. Well, it didn't take long for all of us to be on the same page. And people say, you know, I say my grandmother, well, there was an A-team. There was a, and it was the staff who really started. Uh, what happened is a lot of people think, you know, oh, you know, uh, you know I, there were my grandmother's friends who were really helpful. I couldn't just pick up the phone and call them. I didn't really know them. And so it was through staff, my grandmother's staff, and, for example, staff of David Rockefeller, who was a close, close friend of my grandmother's, that I could connect with David. And with Annette de la Renta, who eventually, who, who was my grandmother, ended up being my gar- grandmother's guardian after I filed a petition for guardian. And Henry Kissinger filed an affidavit for that petition. So this is a civil trial. Philip wants his father out of his grandmother's house, money, and life. He wants her to live freely and with dignity. But as the trial ends and Anthony Marshall loses his fight to maintain his role as sole guardian... The judge makes a ruling that surprises Philip and gets the attention of the Manhattan DA's office. Based on the court evaluator's report, the the guardianship judge said elder abuse was not substantiated. That one clause catapulted us from case to cause. We were no—we'd save—I'd save my grandmother. She was in the country, okay? But to think that if this was not elder abuse, it was going to be open season on seniors— In other words, the Manhattan DA and Philip Marshall were now intent on pursuing a criminal case. Liz Lowy was the head of the elder abuse unit with the Manhattan DA's office. She ultimately spent 30 years there before starting her own company, Eversafe, a fraud monitoring platform protecting seniors and their families from financial abuse. She is passionate about protecting seniors from financial exploitation and elder abuse. Elder abuse is a huge problem, and it's a growing problem. There's physical abuse. There are all of those cases that involve family members. You know, domestic violence can also be elder abuse. There are sex crimes that involve older victims and neglect cases that also can be criminal. There's emotional uh, abuse that can involve an older person. And then there's, of course, financial exploitation involving older victims. Here's what might surprise you. Out of this range of forms of abuse, it's the financial abuse that is the most deadly. Uh, The University of Texas did a study uh, 
about a year ago, I'd say, where they looked at the mortality of different forms of elder abuse. And surprisingly, elder financial abuse and caregiver neglect had the lowest survival rate or the highest rate of mortality, higher than physical abuse and domestic violence cases. I had a lawyer here in Manhattan who had lived through three heart attacks. And when he was exploited by a caregiver, uh, an aide whom he loved, uh, he passed away before I could even meet him. And his daughter told me, I can't prove it. I cannot prove it. But I'm telling you, he lost the will to live after after she did this to him. In addition to seeing family members taking advantage of the elderly, Lowy sees other common themes across cases of financial exploitation. The exploiters are smart. They start small. They don't take like a big amount from one bank account. They usually steal across bank accounts. Sometimes they use bank accounts and an investment account and, and, a, and a credit card. Then they hit identity theft in the credit report. But they usually steal across accounts, across institutions. They fly under the radar. Lowy and her colleagues started looking at the Brooke Astor case. They took a close look at finances and saw lots of suspicious activity, erratic transfers, and Astor getting more and more ill. Six months and more than 70 witnesses later, Philip Astor's father, Anthony, was convicted and sentenced to prison. The last time he spoke to his father was at the trial. There, uh, my father was found convicted on, I think it was 14 of 15 counts. There was mandatory sentence of at least a year in prison. And uh, and he ended up in prison. He was sentenced to a year. And then how long was he there? He was there for a couple months, and then he was he was released on parole. And then he subsequently passed. And away. then he passed away in November 2014. And I went to the funeral. You did. Yeah, for the service. You're taking on this fight for your grandmother. Um, was a, I would imagine a a, a big step in a lot of ways, but it cost you. Um, you can see or you can hear that it cost me. And, so, and it, you know, um, it cost me a lot. And the money, you know, people go, oh, you could have, in, you, you were disinherited by your father and you would have inherited double-digit millions. It's like, I don't care about the money. And so I'm compelled to uh, advocate so people know that um, to be complacent about elder justice is to be complicit in elder abuse. And our silence protects perpetrators, not their victim. And that today victims of this crime may be strangers. Tomorrow, they may be our loved ones and perhaps in the future, ourselves. Seniors and society deserve more. Isolation is one of the biggest issues. You know, basically renew that relationship that you have with seniors because you're going to be there soon enough, if you're lucky, also. Outside of the main scope of this story, I, I have to ask what your feelings were about your father as this all sort of unraveled. I cannot believe what he did to his mother. And, uh, you know... And, and what's really sad, you know, sometime along halfway through the trial when I was testifying, you know, somebody goes, well, you have to speak to your father through the press. But, you know, my 
statement to the press the day, one of the days I testified was, you know, I asked my father to please plea and ask to seek forgiveness. And he didn't. He never sought forgiveness. He ended up in jail for a few months, in prison for a few months and came out for parole board. And the parole board said, well, Mr. Marshall, would you do anything differently? And he said, I suppose. Did you love your father? Yes. Yeah. I felt so sorry for him. I felt really, really sorry for how how things have not worked out. Was your uh, father in need of that much money? No, he was going to inherit like the equivalent he was of doing all like right. fifty million already. He was doing okay. He was doing fine. He did not need another hundred million or whatever. No, he was doing just fine. I'd like to bring Jalene Gunter into our conversation. She is director of BankSafe at AARP. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. BankSafe is an AARP startup project looking at stopping financial exploitation by empowering people on the front lines at financial institutions. Jalene says that one out of five people become victims of financial exploitation and two out of five know someone who has been exploited. The average victim loses about $120,000. Imagine the fact that every week... You're paying into your retirement, and then in a blink of an eye, that all disappears because you have one kid that's gone to the dark side. If you think about it as a con artist, Mm -hmm. a con artist with a scam has to – they have to first look at gaining trust of their victim. They have to look at isolating their victim so no one can help, and they have to also figure out where the assets are. If you're a family member, you have that already. Right. You know where the money is. You've already gained that trust. What steps can be taken to ensure that a loved one is not financially exploited? I think one of the things to do is be that second pair of eyes to see if there's anything suspicious going on. Um, perpetrators of this crime are just like predators in the wild. They're looking for that. They're looking for the weakness to exploit. And one of the things to really keep careful eye on are kind of four different things. Has there been an illness? Has there been a loss of spouse? And has there been cognitive decline? And is there isolation? And when you see those types of things, you want to close ranks because that's where we see perpetrators um, take advantage of an open opportunity. From the perspective of someone who could be a victim uh, if they feel like maybe something is not right or they just want to make absolutely sure that something like this isn't going to happen to them. What can they do? I think one of the biggest things is is to prevent isolation. Um, If you are feeling pressured, fear, or manipulation, to reach out to someone that you know, whether that's a friend, a family member, or a church member, and ask them for advice. And if, if there isn't someone in their community Every state has an adult protective services unit that you can call that's an anonymous, um, and they'll start an investigation to look into the financial exploitation and stop it. And you can find out what the adult protective services unit is in your state by going to eldercare.acl.locator.gov. Frank, this story was in the news. It was very She was a very famous person, but to hear it from Philip Marshall and everything that he went through uh, to, to protect his grandmother as much as he could. Uh, it, it's really an emotional story. 
Very emotional. And as you know, as we know, in many, many cases involving uh, scams and cons and defrauding people, a lot of times it is, unfortunately, a family member uh, that's doing that, which makes it even more devastating that someone would steal from their own uh uh, family, but uh, that's pretty much a common a common occurrence, unfortunately. You so that that, that is I mean, you see this all the in, time. In, yeah. Okay, kids who write checks off their parents' checkbooks or get into their bank account or steal their jewelry and sell it to someone. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, that's a that's a common thing that goes on. He talks about the nurses and the staff uh, that noticed some of the things that were going on in the household. We don't all have families with nurses or staff, but if we're able to get clues from people who are close to our family and, and like in this case, maybe find out something's going on that otherwise would remain hidden, uh, it's important to sort of keep be aware of those. Yeah, and I think in the case of in, – in this particular case, here's the son who's already – he's an elderly individual himself. His mother is very elderly. Mother doesn't really understand what's going on. So he sees the opportunity to – well, I can make some money by selling some of her things – uh, using some of her money. She's not going to know it. She's not going to miss it. Um, it's very much a case of elderly abuse. And uh, again, no one was out looking for care of the mother, to making sure the mother was okay other than the son. And again, the mother probably felt she only needed the son to look after her, and the son wasn't doing that. The son was taking uh, advantage of her. So some of the people that worked for her realized that was going on and tried to let people know, hey, there's nothing that's not right here and someone needs to look into this. And so, ironically, that man's son was the one who came forward and started to do something about it. If there's an amount of money, whatever it is, uh, that, and you want to be careful as a family, maybe you've got siblings or, or uh, others involved, are there things families can do to to not leave it in the hands of maybe the kids? Yeah, this is why I think the real smart individuals uh, that say, for example, the gentleman has made millions and millions of dollars in his will. He's leaving that money to his wife. And uh, however, he has that trust overseen by a very legitimate law firm that he's done business with for years, uh, not just one lawyer or somebody that might go the wrong way. He's dealing with a major law firm. They let them oversee that trust so nobody abuses his wife or, or takes that money from his wife, whether it be a family member or someone from the outside. And she has all the access to the money, but they're also looking after how that uh, money goes and gets spent and that no one's taking advantage of her. I think that's a very smart individual who does that. So scams and fraud can come from the outside and from the inside, so be Absolutely. can come from anywhere. Cautious, yeah. All right. Up next on The Perfect Scam, we would like to welcome back Jen Beam. She manages the Fraud Watch Network Facebook page, and she sees it all. Jen, how are you? Hi, Will. I'm good, thanks. You hear about it all. I hear about it all, yes. I'm on the front lines. The front lines is right, and actually you have a really terrible thing to share with us today, but it's something that all of our listeners should be aware of and looking out for, obituaries. That's right. So um, it's kind of the lowest of the low. It's pretty terrible. Uh, what it is is scammers are, uh, you know, think now. You can go to Legacy.com. It's not just a newspaper. You can find uh, an obituary online. And if you think about a traditional obituary, they're packed with information. So if you think of someone, they're grieving, their loved one has just 
died, they have so much to do following the death of, you know, their beloved, uh, you know, husband, their spouse, a family member. And it's really easy to just follow the traditional format of writing that obituary so you can check it off, you know, check it off the list uh, and get on to all the other, you know, arrangements that you have to make. So the problem is when you think about what you put in a traditional obituary, there is tons of personal information. Yeah, you know, I, 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 of course. And so what you can see is um, you can pull names, addresses, birthplaces, birth dates are often in there. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, the huge list of family members and right, right. pets even. And so think of all the security questions you're asked. Those are all in there. So it's your mother's maiden name, that kind of information. Um, so the tip is, and it's really hard uh, because these are the tough advice to give is that when you're writing a death notice, that you leave a lot of this out. And that can be really hard, you know, to not include the list of all the loved ones who have been left behind, to not include birthplace, to not include your mother's maiden name. But it really does protect both the deceased and those who are left behind. I'm even hearing one of uh, uh, our Facebook members shared that she saw in her town, they were seeing an increase in crime tied to when funerals were happening. Oh, so goodness. actual criminals were reading the obituary and then, you know, casing these houses during the funeral hours. So um, what, what was really cool is that this community set up um, kind of like a fraud watch group and they actually keep an eye on um, people's houses when they're going through this, which I think is amazing. All right, uh, Jen, join us again, please, will you? And we'll find more about things that we need to know about, even if we don't want to know about it. <laughs> well put. Thank All right. And Jen Beam is with the Fraud Watch Network Facebook page. Thanks again, Jen. Thank you. If you or someone you know has been the victim of a scam or you just need information on anything scam related, call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. Thanks to my team of scam busters, Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis and audio engineer Steve Bartlett and audio mastering done by Julio Gonzalez. For AARP, The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today.